Father, we are indeed grateful for your goodness. We love to sing about it, think about it. We're grateful because your goodness changed us. Father, today as we study your word, I pray that you would inspire us to trust your goodness. That we would live convinced that you know best. That you're the lover of our souls, that you're our friend, and that you will lead us into the abundant, significant, effective life you have created us for. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This series, Immeasurably More, has been inspired by a comment that Paul made in writing to the church in Ephesus, where he said that Christ's power in us would enable us to do more, immeasurably more, than we could ever ask or imagine. Now, when, when you came to Christ, when you chose to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what did you imagine for yourself? We, we imagined victory. We imagined joy. We imagined peace. We, we imagined significance that our lives were going to count, that they were truly going to matter. And Paul says, yes, in Christ, that's it, plus immeasurably more. That's not all. There's immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. So our driving question for this series has been, what happened? What happened? Because, well, I'll admit it, even on my best day, I'm not exceeding my expectations. This, this, I don't always experience immeasurably more. So, because when we're honest, there, there's a distance from where we typically are to where the scripture teaches us we could be. We in this series are trying to figure out what immeasurably more is, what it looks like, how, how it works in our lives. What did Paul mean by it? Was it the same thing that Jesus meant when he said that he came that we might have the abundant life? The answer to that is yes, immeasurably more is the abundant life. We've asked where it comes from. And what do we have to do to experience it? What, what, what needs to happen so that our lives are marked by immeasurably more? So last week, we began by asking the question, where does it come from? What happened to initiate God's vision for immeasurably more? Or God's vision for abundance for us? And if you joined us, then you know we took a look at the Jesus' most famous parable, which is, we, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. But when we looked at it with fresh eyes, 
we discovered that the parable is really not about one ragamuffin wandering son, but it's about two, two sons. And it could be responsibly called the parable of the disconnected sons. Both wanted their father's goods. Both wanted their father's blessings. They wanted immeasurably more, but neither of them wanted the father. They didn't want a relationship with the father, so they were disconnected. One of them, the prodigal, went away, avoiding the father in rebellion, and the other stayed close by, avoiding the father in his own resistant, resentful way. So they were both disconnected from the Father. The remarkable part of the story that we often miss is that Jesus made it crystal clear that Father pursued both of his sons. He set out after them. The Father was running after them in hopes of drawing them in to be with him. He, the Father, wanted desperately to have a relationship with his sons. And his act of pursuit was about amazing grace. And it is a perfect picture of the grace that God offers to all of us. In that, while we are yet sinners... While we are living in rebellion, while we are resistant, Christ came to the earth, stepped out of eternity and into time, abandoning all the riches of being in heaven, on the throne. He abandoned all of that to pursue us by dying for us. And the message of that story and the message of Scripture from beginning to end is that God pursues all of us. He comes to embrace us all, not as we should be, but just as we are. Just as you are. On good days and bad, the Father is there embracing you. And so we have the capacity to enjoy union with him because of his grace. But, but here's the flip side of that union. Okay, there's, there's always the other side of the coin, right? To enjoy union with God and therefore to experience immeasurably more the abundant life that we long for and by the way we're created for, to enjoy that, we have to trust His goodness, the goodness that we've been singing about today. We have to trust His goodness and go with Him. We have to follow. In the story of the two disconnected sons, how many of them followed the Father and entered into the celebration? Only one, and it was the prodigal. The prodigal trusted his father's goodness. He trusted that his father wanted what was best for him. And so he went into the celebration, the abundant life. But the older, colder brother, he didn't trust the father. He didn't trust that father knows best. And he stayed outside. 
and was ultimately left out of the celebration. So here's the deal. If we don't trust the goodness of God, if we don't trust that Father knows best, we won't follow the path that he carved out for union. We will actually sabotage God's plan for us, and we will never enjoy the life of immeasurably more that God envisions for us. It won't happen. Here's the bottom line. If we don't trust his goodness, we won't obey or follow his direction. If you don't trust his goodness, you won't obey or follow his direction. And, like the older brother, we'll be left out. We won't experience immeasurably more. Now, you may object to that. And I wouldn't blame you if you did, because didn't, haven't we spent two weeks saying immeasurably more is really about God's amazing grace? That, that it is. We did. Amazing grace is where it starts. It's how it's sustained. But that's not all there is to it. There's the other side of the coin. Now, let, let's go back to the beginning. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at the story where everything went off the rails. Where, for the first time in history, there was much less. They abandoned the gift of immeasurably more. In Genesis chapter 3, by the way, if you're new, I'm going to tell you some unnecessary information. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and chapter 3 happens to be the third chapter in the Bible. So there's your direction. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent, he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Hey, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, No, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. What else could she do? She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her all the time, right there. He was with her. And he ate it. Now, the story of the fall and what's going on there is multifaceted. There are lots of different facets that we could look at. But at the heart of it, at the heart of the fall, 
was Adam and Eve's trust or lack thereof in the goodness of God. Everything was set up for them perfectly. God created the idyllic, Edenic environment for them to thrive in. It was a perfect place created just for them. And along comes the crafty serpent with a simple little question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the answer to that is obviously no. He didn't say that at all. He didn't say you can't eat from any of these trees. The serpent was twisting God's word, which, by the way, is what the enemy does to us. He twists God's word to lead us astray. So the serpent was twisting God's word. And in essence was calling into question God's goodness. If God was good, if he's really for you, would he keep anything from you? Is there anything that you could experience that would be fun and exciting and good for you that God would say, no, 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 that's not for you? Well, if he's good, he, he, he would open all those experiences up to us. He was causing them to question God's goodness. That that tree, which was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was a great source for food. The, The food on the tree, it looked good. It's pleasing to the eye. There's nothing to indicate that it was any different from any of the other food on the other trees, but it was also, Eve saw, good for wisdom. So she looks at that tree and sees what she's never seen before. Before, when she trusted God's goodness, she, God said, don't eat from that tree, and she said, okay, we'll just avoid that one, no big deal. Look at all these other trees he's provided. But then with that question, she looked at it differently. She saw something she had never seen. Fruit, good for food. Fruit, good to the eye. Looked great. And she could get wisdom from eating it. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, the serpent was right. Maybe God was withholding from them. Maybe there was more to life than than living it as God directed. Maybe, just maybe, God wasn't so good. So what happened? Doubting the goodness of God, doubting that God knew what was best for them, they ate the fruit. And the result was they were no longer able to dwell with God in the garden. Death came in the form of disunion. And outside the garden, they lost the immeasurably more existence that God created for them and that God created them for. And the message is clear. Should be clear. If 
we trust God's goodness, we will obey Him. It is faith in the goodness of God that inspires our obedience. And if we obey Him, the message seems to be immeasurably more is ours. Now that makes sense, right? I mean, it's clear when you stop and think about it. How, how could we expect to live the abundant life if we choose not to live the obedient life? I mean, it, it just makes sense that God would respond to our obedience and award us with abundance. It makes sense, but it's actually not true. Haven't we spent the past two weeks saying that that's not at all how it works, that immeasurably more is about God's being in us and He makes it happen by His grace? We, we, we don't earn His approval. We don't earn His love. But if we're saying that obedience is required for the life of immeasurably more, Aren't we really saying that it's on us and it is completely dependent upon our obedience? So how do we work, how do we get through this? Because that's what it sounds like we're saying, right? Adam and Eve didn't get immeasurably more because they disobeyed. And by the way, it seems as though Jesus throws his full support behind that idea. When he was visiting with his disciples, the meeting they had, the last thing he was able to say to them in the upper room the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. That's John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And then in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. It's pretty clear that Jesus is saying that commandment keeping is the key to love and friendship with God, right? Commandment keeping is the key. And, and therefore, we assume it is the key to God providing us with the abundant life. But let me ask a question about those two verses. Remember John 14, 15? If you love me, keep my commands. And John 15, 14... If you are my friends, if you do what I command. Whose love was he talking about? And whose friendship was he talking about? Does Jesus say in, to his disciples there, I will love you if you keep my commands? Does he say, I will be your friend if you do what I command you to do? No. That's not at all what he's saying. His statements aren't about God's love for us or God's friendship toward us. His statements are about our love for God and our friendship to God. Now this is really important. If you love me, keep my commands. You are my friends. You are showing the world that you are a friend to me if you do what I command. Listen, his love and friendship, they're not in question. They 
are established in the past, unwavering, never waning. His love and friendship was demonstrated to us when Jesus laid down his life for us. Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. We, we don't keep his commands or do what he says to do in order to attract his love and approval. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God showed that we, he was our friend by sending his son to meet our greatest need by dying for us on the cross. So listen, God's part has been done. His love and his friendship are established. Past tense. Independent of our response to him. Long before any of us ever considered loving God. Long before any of us wanted to obey God. Before it ever occurred to us to follow him. He loved us. It was an act of amazing, breathtaking grace. This is what the father did for the prodigal and the older, colder son. He pursued them and loved them when they weren't interested in a relationship with him. That's exactly what God did for us. So no, listen, it is not our obedience is not about earning God's love and therefore his blessing. So what's it about? It's about being hospitable to God in our hearts. It's about welcoming God's presence by responding to his well-established love and friendship with an offer of love and friendship of our own. And that's what makes all the difference. Paul makes it very clear for us in his letter to the Ephesians. If you've grown up or been around a church that shares the gospel, the truth of the gospel, then you know these two verses. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, this is what Paul wrote. For it is by grace, God's amazing grace, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not by works, so that none of us can boast... It is God's grace, His love, His mercy that initiates a relationship with us. Adam and Eve left the garden. God sent Jesus to bring us back into the garden. It's by our faith in His gospel and His goodness that we are brought into union with God. It is a relationship that transforms us. And from that time on forward, from the moment we place our faith in Jesus, and forever, listen, we are positioned to enjoy immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. It's not by our work, so that we can't brag. It's by Jesus' work on the cross. We, we just believe that he has done his part to be our friend. 
And then Paul follows that verse up with one more that we dare not leave behind. Look at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. We're God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which, by the way, God prepared in advance for us to do. So there's grace, there's the establishment of a relationship, and now there's responsibility. There's work to be done. Yeah, see, when we receive the gift of God's grace, we receive the Holy Spirit who comes into our lives to transform us by uniting us to Christ and enabling us to live for God's purpose for us. And it's at that point, listen, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is at that point that we become God's handiwork. Okay? Listen, you need to know this. We're all created in the image of God. We are all the apple of God's eye. But if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are not yet his handiwork. Because you are not in Christ. But when you are united with him, by his grace through your faith, you are his handiwork. What does that mean? What does it mean to be God's handiwork? Well, the Greek word for handiwork there is the word poiemo. Okay? It's the root word for poem. Wait a minute, am I saying we're God's poetry? Absolutely. It's exactly what he's saying. We are God's poem in Christ Jesus. We are therefore the revelation of God's thoughts, his perspectives, and his desires. In other words, through God's love for us, we are brought into union with Christ to do good works which God has already prepared, he's dreamed of us doing, and that good work is to be the poem that reveals his heart to the world. Just as a poet writes a poem to reveal his hopes and dreams to the world, God called us to himself so we would reveal his hopes and dreams for the world. In Christ, you are God's poem to the world. And our work is to reveal his love and compassion. To the world he created to unite with. So think about it. Is a poem's job to earn the approval of the author? Is, it, is the poem's job to get the author to love it? No, he loved it because he created it. It's part of who he is. So the good works are not designed, the good work of the poem is not designed to earn the author's approval. The poem has the author's approval, or it wouldn't be published. 
in the same way when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we, we, we have God's approval. We are recipients of God's great love and amazing grace. That can't be earned. So what are the works? What are the works we're supposed to do? Well, it's really simple. They're missional works that embrace the call to reveal God to the world he loves. The work is mission. That's the good work. And when we're on mission with God, living in his power, it's immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. So what, what kind of missional work? Well, it really falls into two categories. First, we do the work of showing the world that we have prioritized friendship God. Okay, we, we want the world to know that we are his friend. We want the world to know that it is union with God that really makes us different. Now, this looks back to the Old Testament where the works of obedience that the Jews did showed that they were God's chosen people. Okay, they, they obeyed the laws of Moses because it set them apart from all the pagan people around them. Now, there are two laws that they followed, two primary works that are applicable to us. Okay, there was the work of Sabbath-keeping, and there was the work, the obedience, in submitting to the laws of circumcision. Okay, Sabbath-keeping was is the idea of devoting a day to God, trusting in his goodness that he would provide for them. All the pagans around them said, look, if you don't work seven days a week, you won't eat. God said, no, 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 I've got a better plan, trust me. Take the seventh day off and I'll provide. That was Sabbath keeping. Circumcision was an outward sign of submission to covenant with our creator. It was a covenant between God and his people. So let's talk about those. Sabbath keeping is still about setting aside aside time for our friend. We're his friend. You want to be my friend? Set aside time for me. You want to be God's friend? Set aside time for God. It's also, by the way, about committing time to his other friends. Okay, we're spending time with his church. That's Sabbath keeping. We are studying his word. We are praying. We're breaking bread together. Why? Because all of that stuff is important to our friend in heaven. The writer of Hebrews tells us not to forsake the assembling together. Okay, that sends the message that we are prioritizing the worship of God in our lives and the friends of God. We're a part of the community that he died to establish. It is important to our friend Jesus, and therefore it should be important to us. 
So we're going to participate in Sabbath keeping, the building and serving of the church. We are going to serve its good because he's our friend. Now what about circumcision? Well, it's not necessarily the mark that differentiates us from others as it was for the Jews. Today, you know what it is? It's believer's baptism. Okay, Jesus told the church, last thing, this was the last command, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We cannot obey Jesus' command to be baptizing people if God's friends aren't being baptized. Baptism is an outward, just like circumcision was, baptism is an outward sign of the inward presence of Christ Jesus. It is the sign of the new covenant, our union with Christ. And so when we submit believers' baptism, we are being obedient to Christ and telling the world that we are His, that we want to be His friend. We are doing the work that God called us to do. Why? Because it reveals He is our priority. It is missional. Okay, it transforms us. It makes us more intimate. It brings us into more intimacy with God. But it also shares the truth with the world about what Christ came to do for us. These are those kinds of works that are a response of friendship or works that deepen our friendship with God and missionally they reveal it the second kind of work that God calls us to is to reveal his heart to the world you you know that's what poetry does right it just kind of exposes the heart of the poet to the world you're God's poem you got to reveal his heart The way we do that is by serving the world that the Son of Man came to serve. We serve the world that Jesus came to save. In this way, we are ambassadors of Christ. We're taking the message, revealing His heart, showing the world His compassion. And so we work to transform the community. Because we're here, because we are God's poem, the world should be a better place. Not to make God happy with us or love us or approve of us. We've already got that. But we give, we volunteer, we serve, we take care of those and orphans, Not because we have to, but because as God's poem, we are showing the world God's heart and hopefully winning them over to God's goodness. Those are the good works. Those those things are us raising our hand to God saying, I want to be your friend. I'm making space for you. I'm opening my heart. I'm, I, I, I want to be hospitable to your presence. And then in his presence 
is immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. We do those good works, revealing God's heart, not to earn his love, but to celebrate it. To celebrate our union, think about this, we celebrate our union with our creator. And the celebration of that union enables us to reveal his goodness to others. When we believe, really believe, in the goodness of God, we want the world to know. And we'll show them that we want them to know by doing what he's called us to do. Doing that work, celebrating Christ in us, leads to immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Two questions. Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you placed your faith in the good, gracious work that he did for us? The pursuit of the sinner, that was his life's call. The demonstration of his love was his death on the cross. to restore us to God. Have you placed your faith and trust in that good news? If so, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. Drawing you to a growing, intimate relationship with your Savior. He's demonstrated his friendship. The second question is, are you demonstrating yours? Friendships depend upon the active participation of both individuals. And when you have a friend, you do what they love to do. You care about what they care about. Are you a friend to God? Do you love, serve, and support His church? Have you taken the step of baptism to tell the world, I'm a friend Jesus and are you serving others so they can experience his love Father thank you so much for showing us what true friendship is for making the way for us to be united to be in union with Christ And Lord, I I pray that our union with him, our connection 
will lead to a friendship that reveals your heart to the world. Lord, if there are any here today who have not placed their faith and trust in you, in your friendship, in your goodness, I pray that today would be the day that they choose faith. And Lord, for those of us who have trusted you, I pray that we would take steps toward being a friend to loving you and being obedient to the possibility of representing you as your poem to the world. Lord, we, we want immeasurably more, not for our glory, but for yours. In Christ's name I pray, amen.